It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. All that said, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. Becoming a Next Real member gives you access to all sorts of additional and exclusive content. Plus, you're helping us keep the lights on. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership, where you can learn more about becoming a member, which costs a measly $5 a month, practically the same as one fancy coffee drink. And you get so much more. Every month, we record a bonus episode exclusively for members. Those episodes cover movies from whatever series we're covering at the moment, or add to previous series. Some movies we've covered that only members get to hear us discuss include The Blues Brothers, The Russia House, Naked Lunch, Independence Day, The Hot Rock, and Relic, the better one. Plus, members get to vote on what we're going to discuss for those episodes. We also record additional pre- and post-show content in regular episodes that only members get to hear. Like conversations about similarly themed movies. And answering listener questions from our live member chat. Speaking of our live member chat, we record almost all of our episodes in Discord, where members can chat right along with us live. Members get access to other members-only channels in our Discord community as well. On top of all that, members get all episodes a full week earlier than everyone else in a private Next Reel feed just for them that includes all the shows in the Next Reel family. The Next Reel, the film board, movies we like, sitting in the dark, and more new projects on the way. To top it all off, members don't have to listen to ads. We've already eliminated those annoying, dynamically inserted ads that, let's face it, we all hate it. We are listening to you. We love podcasting for a living, and those ads help to pay the bills. Now, we're counting on you, dear listener. We promise we aren't going back to those terrible, dynamically inserted ads that don't relate to us at all. All we ask is that you consider supporting the Next Real family of podcasts with a membership. Again, it's $5 per month or $55 per year. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership. Thenextreel.com slash membership. Get your access to early, ad-free episodes with bonus content, member bonus episodes, and access to member channels and live streams in Discord by signing up today. Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Monty Python and the Holy Grail is over. Please, this is supposed to be a happy occasion. Let's not bicker and argue over who killed who. Once in a lifetime, there comes a motion picture which changes the whole history of motion pictures. A picture so stunning in its effect, so vast in its impact, that it profoundly affects the lives of all who see it. One such film is... Very good, thank you. Yes, thank you. Next, please. Once in a lifetime, there comes a motion picture which... Changes the whole history of mole shum pictures. Uh, yes, thank you. Next. Once in a lifetime! 
Go away. What? Next. What's wrong with my voice? My voice is all right. My brain is wrong. That's more like it. Kurosawa's Seven Samurai, 就是这样的一部电影。还有 Ivan the Terrible， 其余的都是平常的电影。像 Herbie Rides Again, La Notte 和 Monty Python and the Holy Grail。Monty Python and the Holy Grail 有许多滑稽的。If you do not open this door, we shall take this castle by force. <笑> One day, lad, all this will be yours. What the curtains? Run away! What makes you think she is a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt. 但是和 The Seven Seal 来比一下，这部电影就非常幼稚。No. <笑>所以，如果您是一个知识界记的小家伙，您也喜欢傻笑什么事，也不能更着。Monty Python and the Holy Grail. 看完了，来这里吃便饭。Holy Grail, Andy. This is the first Monty Python feature film after their success with Flying Circus. Yes, I think that they. It looks like they did this、uh, between the third and fourth seasons of. Monty Python's Flying Circus. Well, see now I'm getting a correction. This just in second feature. What was their first feature? If not this, did they do Life of Brian first? This was their first、um, uh, feature, actual film. Their first film was a compilation of sketches. It was just kind of pulling、that、a bunch of stuff that together. That was, and、count. now for something completely different. No, yeah, I, it's but technically that was quote first, but this is their first original feature film. Okay, well we'll just call it that. I yeah, I think this is the this is the one that counts because it's the whole story. It, it is a, a whole story, so I want to know how,、um, like, how this movie continues. It really was something completely different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, stop.、Uh, how how do you how do you approach this movie after all these years?、Uh, I mean, it's it's an easy easy film to watch and to put on and to. Uh, enjoy. It is a hard, hard film to watch and not just quote everything. That's obnoxious. It I'm、It's、obnoxious because to I、me. turn in. I turn into that person. I really do turn into that person.、Um, I first saw this film. I heard about it from a buddy of mine. Who's、um, this? Probably would have been like.、Um, Late elementary school, early junior high, right at that age where you're still getting babysat sometimes, but you feel like you're kind of on that edge of I don't need to be babysat anymore. Edge, you know. And I remember my buddies.、Uh, he told me that his babysitter showed it to them, 
and they just thought it was crazy and funny. And I just remember like him trying to explain the story to me and I just really couldn't, I was like, huh, okay, I don't know. It sounds really bizarre. And then it was another few years before I did finally check it out. And like the the comedy, the comedy stylings, we'll just say, of Monty Python. I hadn't seen anything from Monty Python. I'd never seen Flying Circus before this. This was the first time I came into contact with them as as comedians and um filmmakers artists all that and it just was like so right up my alley like the comedy all of it just worked it's exactly the sort of stuff i enjoy from start to finish and so it just instantly clicked with me and then in high school of course you know the theater uh nerds we had our certain things that we all would always quote and gravitate back to and when we're all sitting around um, you know, hanging out at each other's houses, the sorts of things that we would end up putting on like this. It's, it's like, we watched this all the time, quoted it all the time. Um, you know, it was like this, it was like the Broadway Les Mis soundtrack. Uh, they might be giants. It's like, there are those certain things that, you know, you all kind of gravitate to and it just becomes your, your every day. And so this was, um, one of those things. And I, um, it, it just gave me, a, it birthed my love for the Monty Python boys and just everything they do. And it actually introduced me to Terry Gilliam, who of course would go on to make Brazil, uh, which is one of my favorite films. Yes, indeed. I, uh, I don't even remember. I don't remember the first time I saw this movie. I don't remember it. And I just know that it's, it seems like it's always been there. It's always been <laughs> present. And, uh, I had the, the, uh, opportunity to sit down with the family. We did it for, as a little family movie night, and everybody was into it. And I, I think everybody loved it. The kids hadn't seen it. Uh, and, you know, my wife hadn't seen it in many, many years, and it's not a hooligan for it um, at all. Um, but the, the the wonder of that movie is just how pervasive the comedy is it starts so early it start the rug pulls start so early with the swedish subtitles um the swedish in quotes subtitles that uh, i i feel like they they really smartly build you into the world of absurdity in this movie so that the first time arthur comes over the hills riding the sound of coconuts it makes sense, right? You get it. It That doesn't look absurd because the credits were already absurd, right? They just have such a natural, effortless uh, sort of flair for demonstrating how to get you in the mood for something funny. Yeah, and that's, I think, exactly what I was really noticing on this watch is just how they, they build things in constantly. You know, I was... Um, over the the weekend, I was reading a, a, a write-up by somebody about this um, cartoonist who um, had kind of faded from history, but he had been reminded of this particular person. And unfortunately, I can't remember, but I know um, it ties in with the origin of the phrase Foo Fighters. That's what I remember about the story. But he talked about this this artist and how he would just fill every frame of his comics with just little jokes like 
like there was no empty space. Something was going on everywhere. And that's kind of how I was watching this film. It's like, I mean, we're watching the credits and already we're getting the jokes, as you said, kind of this faux Swedish commentary on on the, you know, enjoying the countryside. And then we go into the whole thing with the moose. Oh God. Yeah. And then of course yeah. the, the, the llamas and the, the, the crazy stuff. So all of that, and it just kind of keeps building like the coconuts, that joke becomes not just a little thing with these coconuts, coconuts, but then it ties into, you know, how did they get here? They migrated. Well, swallows, you know, then it's like these swallows. Well, it could be an African swallow. And that joke like extends all the way through the film. Like we have that all the way up to the, the old man on the bridge. As as his like, what's the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? You know, it's just like we we keep building these jokes, uh, just like the old lady throwing like hitting the cat up against the wall. And, you know, you just consistently as they're as we're going into a new town, you just hear that Meow! as the cat's getting beaten and beaten, and the the monks hitting themselves on the head. Like they keep building these little things that, as you're kind of looking around in the background and everything, these these moments just kind of keep. Uh, layering upon themselves and yeah it's it's a perfect way to kind of do this uh, uh, comedic world building as you said which is uh, i think works well and you know probably for brits as they're getting a, a tale of king arthur and his quest for the holy grail it allows a lot of um, instant touchstones that they know are already there but then it allows what they're doing here to kind of continue building upon that and, and kind of creating this very, very funny version of that story. Well, I was thinking about that, the, the, um, when they get to the castle or when, you know, he, um, er, Palin gets to the castle and it's full of the virgins and she stops and turns around and says, I really think this is great. This is a great story. And they go to the montage of everybody else in the movie saying, move along, but it's all characters you haven't seen yet that you're going to meet later in the movie. Um, I, that's one of those things. It's like, who are all of those people? What a fascinating tie to uh, future vignettes in the film that I haven't seen with, uh, yet that, um, that, tie me to sitting and watching the whole movie because I I'm provoked. I want to know what happens. When am I going to meet the guy with horns? You know, I think that's that's really smart. It's it, it that's the thing as dumb as this thing presents. It does so in a way that's so articulately and intelligently built in in terms of its comedy mechanism that I think ties it ties a nice little bow on the police car showing up at the end in a way that that I buy, even if it doesn't necessarily have to make sense. Right. Yeah. There, there, there is this comedy sketch meta storytelling level to the whole thing where it's like, we're telling, you know, a fairly realistic, well, not realistic, but it's, you know, in its own world, we can buy into this story of Arthur on his search for the Holy Grail. If we didn't have those meta bits with the police and with the the artist the having killing, a heart attack, <laughs> the killing of the noted like historian. <laughs> yeah, right. If we didn't have any of that, it would feel very much okay. I can buy this. This is a world that takes place in whatever AD early King Arthur days in in England, and this is a story as he's as they're kind of going through this. It's just the comedy version of it. But then you throw in those meta elements, and I buy all that too. It just feels like, you know, we cut to the historian who's like narrating what is happening as it goes, and then of course 
the two worlds come colliding. And then you just kind of buy into all of that as it kind of continues building all the way up to the ending, which is the the funniest bit as the, the whole rug is pulled out from under us as, as Arthur and Bedivere are arrested and taken away. And that's the end of the quest for the Holy Grail. I mean, it just, it all uh, makes for such a funny telling of this story that allows it to do something different and take it in a different direction. Well, and I think you said something that I think is important to note, that this is a, a British film made by British people who were once British youths and likely studied this in their British school. For them to make this movie and to effectively lampoon so much of their history of the, you know, the the just birth of modern Britain is, uh, I, I think, really funny to the point that they that they actually choose to murder a, a historian laying so heavily on the fact that they are also murdering history, right? Like they are intentionally using these jokes and these props and these uh, artifacts of, of British history for the joke. And they're letting us in on it right up front saying, you know, we Britons, you know, had to suffer through all of that what not history and now we together are going to share the the gag um and and have some laughs as a result and i think that's one of the things that makes this really effective that we're all in on the joke and even more so if you went to school through them and i think there are i mean there are plenty of elements in this story that obviously don't tie into this the tale of um you know arthur and the quest for the holy grail that don't tie into kind of Britain's place in the world at the time, things like that. Um, like we have knights who say knee, we have the three headed knight, we have the, the killer the rabbit, killer rabbit, things that are just, just comical inserted for, for fun. Like we get some really clever, fun bits, but then you also have them aside from the Holy Grail element, you have their relationship with France and, and like the way that they're playing, you know, how the French and the English have this, this perpetual, um, you know, back and forth and, and the taunting of the, uh, French soldier just, you know, is perfect. And as it pops up continuously, you've got, um, playing with the whole idea of the Trojan horse is here. We have the Trojan rabbit. You've got various mythical things that are kind of brought into this. Like they, they're talking about all this stuff, like that makes it feel real, like, you know, Arimathea and, and different things that, okay, it, it definitely places me in this world, but they're just, it, it shows that the troop here, they definitely have a lot of understanding of British history and European history and are smart. And they're writing it and putting it together in a fun and clever way that never has to be taken too seriously, you know? But I mean, some of these, the, the six Monty Python boys, I, I can't remember their schooling, but I know they were at some fairly prominent British schools and and really bring some of that higher level of uh, the satire into their comedy that they do here. And so I think with the six of them, they end up finding a lot of different angles that they can approach the comedy that give you just a huge variety of things to uh, to laugh at. I can sort of imagine a writer's room, right, sitting down and talking about what are, how are we going to, you know, take this story. And you sort of have to know 
the the history well enough to know what to lampoon and when to introduce the ridiculousness, like the the three headed knight and the knights who say knee, like those come directly from the craziness of stories like Beowulf in Scandinavia. Like they just you have to know the backs on which you know those stories are built, and uh, I think I think they're very very funny. So I love it. I think it is when you look at the architecture of the story, it does have a lot of sort of the flying circus vibe in that this really does feel like a collection of related stories or related skits that are tied together in a theme. And uh, I wonder how you want to walk through those. Do you want to talk about some of the skits, some of the sketches that are your favorites? Or um... I, I mean, sure. I, 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 I think it's interesting because... Um, you know, some of them that are my favorites, um, like one of my favorites is the, I'm not sure what we call Michael Palin at this particular point, but, or, or well, he's Dennis, right? I didn't know you were called Dennis, but like they're, <laughs> I, I, what are they doing? Like, they're just like sorting mud. I'm not exactly sure what they're, what they're, uh, you know, there's some lovely <laughs> filth over here, you know, they're, they they're sorting filth. That's yeah, perfect. <laughs> but. Like that community and then the whole political conversation. Like this is another thing that just kind of shows kind of their smart approach to writing. Like that whole conversation of the king assuming that this person is uh, knows nothing because he's here, um, you know, crawling around in in the filth of of this community <laughs> but this person actually has a fairly astute view of of politics and you know these they're the whole anarcho syndicalist commune that these peasants <laughs> have kind of created here and the way that he uh kind of tears into king arthur with the whole uh, the reason he's king is because the lady of the lake came out of the lake and gave him Excalibur. <laughs> and it's like, come on, like, that's no basis for a system of government. Like, it's just that, that to me is uh, so quotable, perfect, absolute, probably the top of my entire experience with this film. I, I love it. And that is such a great example of what we were talking about before, right? That it is ridiculous to put the filth sorting peasants on the same screen with the aristocracy and what they are, what they end up doing is so effectively shining a light on what actually exists <laughs> in terms of poverty and privilege. And, uh, and, and I think it's, it's, uh, I think it's really uh, amusing because the fact that they, they get to talk past one another and that Arthur eventually just moves on is a, an indictment on the royals today, right? Like it's exactly what we're, what we still deal with right, right now. So, uh, I think it's really perfect. And I'd love you. Who, who is your lord? Well, we don't have a lord. <laughs> I just, uh, just really. Yeah. And, and to be, to be joking about, about the, the, uh, implicit permissive structure of royalty in that part of the world that you have to have people who willingly subjugate themselves in order to be a ruler uh is is amazing bit of comedy it is an amazing bit of comedy well and also just yeah the fact that they're um ribbing as you said like the royals period the fact that there's these people that what you're just a king because like, I mean, as it is now, you're only there because you happen to be born into it. Like, there's nothing about 
that line that that shows that you are even born to lead yeah, or anything it's just that you're aware <laughs> yeah you just you're just there and it's it is just kind of such a nonsensical way to kind of lead a place and I, they're certainly having fun with that well and dennis calls it out right if i if i went around saying i was emperor because what's the word I, a moistened bank and moistened, lobbed a scimitar at me bent lobbed a scimitar at me people will put me away <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good and all arthur could say is shut up shut yeah. up shut up <laughs> oh it, now we see the violence inherited in the system it's right, perfect yeah. it is just it is just perfect uh a bit of of um fiery indictment of the system yes what about you do you have a do you have a favorite uh, uh bit in all these uh, kind of uh, segments of the film it's really hard to nail it down, but the uh, the the taunting of the French uh, at the castle gate is uh, one of the things that is is really funny. Yeah, I mean, I, and for years, when I whenever I would put new gloves on, I would pat my head to see if they would make my <laughs> wrists look funny like they do in this because they have big <laughs> wrist protective ledges. I never got gloves that were really that funny, uh, but I always tried. So do I look like anyway? Any, anyway, so that that was a good one. And they have so many good taunts. Like, that's the thing that is so delightful about that is you could pull any one of those out and just use it and it still just rings perfect. You know, like it's it's just... Every one of them. Uh, every time they appear, they just—they're uh, just hilarious. Well, let, I, I, let's dive into the witch one a little bit because the witch one, I think, is another one that is as important as the uh, violence inherent in the system sketch uh, because it is a prescient look at mob mentality that I, I think we could call out today, right? Like right now, uh, with with what is what we get to open up in the media every day, like the the act of the mob bringing them to bringing this witch to the elder statesman, the intelligentsia of the of the place and saying she's a witch. Well, how do you know she's a witch? Well, because she's dressed like one. And she says, well, you dress me this way. <laughs> like, you made me this thing. And now you're telling me I'm a witch. And the the weirdly beautiful bit of the arc of that sketch is that it turns out she's a witch because she weighs the same as a duck. That's the absurdist part. And I think that's the part that actually that actually hammers home the punchline, which is none of what they are doing makes sense. And that's the point of the lampoon, that when we react this way to one another, none of it makes sense. And our modern media landscape and our modern judicial landscape often takes the tone of she's not a witch. Yes, she is. She weighs the same as a duck. Uh, and I think that that makes uh, the sketch like this one and violence inherent in the system important beyond their role as comedic on the movie. I guarantee you I'm overthinking it, but I th that's what I was thinking about as I was watching the movie this time. Well, and even to the point where when they take her and the duck out of the scales that uh, the Bedivere has, they don't line up like they are imbalanced scales. Yes, they're and imbalanced scales. Like that's that's part of the humor also. Right. And it's only one of those things that you don't necessarily even notice right away because you're kind of following the action. But when you've seen it a few times, you see that after they pull them out, the scales kind of skew and you realize they're they're not even analyzing enough to to look into 
like what's behind the truths that they're buying into. And, you know, again, that kind of speaks to today also in just the way that people just jump on something that they that seems true. And so they're going to use it as the truth without actually investigating to see if if there's any bedrock of a foundation to it. Well, and, you know, for example, I turned she turned me into a newt, a newt. I got better. And the next line <laughs> is the crowd screaming, burn her anyway. Burn yeah. <laughs> her anyway, right? That's that's sort of horrifying. So, like, you, you take the comedy out, and and it's uh, it's horrifying. Uh, so, I I do love the I do love the witch, uh, and of course the the lines that are funny it, get down into you know why do witches burn. Because they're because they're made yeah, of wood. As they're puzzling that through. Well, make a just the fact, out of her. <laughs> and just the fact that that's the path that Sir Bedivere has put together in his quote wise head of like you know uh, if this then that and it just is like it's all nonsense and just but he's so wise because he's already pieced that together and the fact that the king of course is the one who can follow the path whereas the the peasants aren't able to and he recognizes a duck as the thing that can also float on water uh, and everyone's like ooh like it just it just speaks to that idea that even when it's a world of nonsense you know the people who seem like they know are the people that people listen to and it does feel very prescient for politics probably of any period well and it's it's again popping the bubble of history like we look at King Arthur as this legendary person this legendary hero in history and it turns out he was the one who was the big smarty who who came up with the duck answer right like maybe it, putting our uh, history on such a pedestal isn't best for modern um understanding of complicated issues yeah Another element that I think the Monty Python boys certainly play with, not just in this film, but both of their uh, subsequent films, uh, Life of Brian and Meaning of Life, is the relationship of people and religion and the view of God. And you definitely have that here as God uh, shows himself to Arthur and his uh, and his knights, and you know they're averting their eyes. They're like everything is like, what are you doing now? And it's just like this relationship of like how people view God, uh, kind of like the holy the 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 things that they do in the first place. Like the only reason they're on this quest is because God appears and tells him to do so. And it's just this idea of the way that they tap into. Um, following God as this this being they're not even allowed to look at, but because he's appeared and is talking to them, they have to follow and do everything he says. And the rites and rituals that uh, kind of go along with anything religious, like to the point where they're chanting a holy vow over the holy hand grenade, like it all just ties in in such a glorious way as to just how they're looking at religion as this element that people... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not trying to poo-poo on religion at all, but it's the way that they're looking at it is something that uh, has a lot of ridiculous kind of rituals and rites and and things that people have to go along with. But you're always like, but why? Like, why is that a thing that is part of this that is required? You know, right? I I think that it is uh, again that uh, that exercise in 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 conflict in friction. Uh, that that what is funny is an idea that is unpalatable. Yeah. So let's see where do they go from here. I think then we do go to Camelot, and it's and and that is immediately where they make it also a silly place by 
by presenting the choreographed dance number that is um, that that is as it says in the lyrics unsingable, and and they have to do do some things with linguistic pry bars to make the the rhymes work, and that again is what makes it funny. Exactly, like they're forcing these rhymes, and it ends up feeling. Um, uh, on the one hand, you could say you could see this sort of stuff working in. Uh, like a, a something done for children. Like it has kind of like, we're going to fit these words together just because it's funny. It, I, I suppose it really just boils down to, to comedy stylings, comedy songwriting, like, you know, forcing rhymes in lyrics just makes it funny. And you do see that a lot in songs written kind of for kids, but this is a perfect example of just doing it straight up for comedy. And the fact that you have dancing and singing people dressed in like their night outfits i think is what makes it so funny because you constantly are hearing that clank 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 of the armor as they're doing their dances and everything and it's just it makes it all the more funny when they're also forcing these rhymes in their songs well it is and and i think the way they like the rest of the movie the way they introduce the comedy insidiously leading up to the um, the sort of finale of the song, right? Round table, we're able, that rhymes fine. Uh, chorus scenes, okay, that's out out of the rhyme scheme, but we bring it back with footwork impeccable, but it's sung impeccable. Camelot, the most ridiculous sort of banal rhyme with Camelot is we dine well here in Camelot, we eat ham and jam and spam a lot. To rhyme with Camelot is absurd, but it just builds progressively over the course of the of the um of the song. And you know, by the time we get to round table, formidable, unsingable, you know, the the words are are nonsense and hysterically funny. And and the fact that the punchline is, yes, we shouldn't go there because it's a silly place. <laughs> is is again, let's poke another hole in history. We're pretty sure that they weren't doing choreographed Broadway numbers in the real Camelot, but again, maybe we shouldn't hold it in such high esteem in our history. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I mean, even the whole, we've already kind of talked a little bit about that, but the historian, the element that we have this historian kind of documenting Arthur and his quest for the Grail itself also feels very, I don't want to say British, but it definitely feels of an element of this sort of story. Like, you, the only reason we have any of these sorts of stories is because historians have read these these old, old texts and have kind of put together all the pieces to kind of figure out the different uh the elements of the stories and even there you have all these different elements within the way that these stories have been crafted so you know um trying to piece it together to figure it all out and so the fact that we have the historian integrated here also in and of itself is a little uh nudge like a just kind of a dig at how popular looking at this story is i mean we talked about this a bit when we did our Robin Hood series a few years ago, the fact that the Robin Hood series, the Robin Hood stories and the Arthur stories, I believe are uh, like, have been so documented uh, over such long periods of time. And there are so many different kind of elements within them that people kind of keep piecing them together and kind of coming up with all these different versions and, and angles for the stories. And I think that's what makes them compelling. But I think it also is the thing that makes it so easy to play with. For sure. For sure. Uh, 
you know, oh man, God, there's so many. Uh, what are you doing in England? Uh, to to the French, then respond, mind your own business, right? That <laughs> that simple exchange is again at the heart of the movie, right? Like, mind your own business. We're not going to tell you the truth. We're going to again lampoon your understanding of a complex historical issues in in a way that also lets the writers off the hook. They don't have to come up with a a way to to explain that, you know. And I think. In a comedy, that works. That's that's the sort of thing that people look at as a plot hole if this was a kind of a serious uh, period piece. They go, oh, there weren't French dealing that, you know, that had occupied British castles at the time. But in a film like this, it totally flies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We haven't really talked about the specific six uh, members of Monty Python, but we have Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Eric Idle, Terry Gilliam, Terry Jones, Michael Palin. They all worked on the script. Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones are the two directors here. Do you have any particular favorite characters that any of them are performing in the context of the film? Or maybe we should say, let's go through the list. What is your favorite character from each of them in the film? Oh, okay. All right. Like if we say Graham Chapman, who would you say? He played, according to the list here, <laughs> Arthur, the King of the Britons, the hiccuping guard. He was yeah. the middle head of the three-headed giant. He was the voice of God. Well, King Arthur. To me, I can't, I, it's, you can't separate Graham Chapman from King Arthur. It's, he's the protagonist of the film. There I said yeah. it. I love him in the film. He's perfect in that role. Uh, then John Cleese. He is Sir Lancelot the Brave. He plays the Black Knight, the French Taunter, Tim the Enchanter, and then some other minor roles. I love John Cleese. He is my favorite of the troupe. Uh, if I were to uh, order the troop is that within the troop or is that outside of the troop as well all of the troop i have a, a fascination with the works of john cleese i think he's fast fascinating and so within the troop outside of the troop within the troop uh, uh you know the cheese shop and the bookshop and i just, everything that he does i think is is pitch perfect uh in terms of this uh i think it would have to be uh the taunting french guard because i have such an affinity for that scene um I, I like it very, very much. I think he's great. Yeah, I, man, I love the French Taunter, but I also love Tim the Enchanter. And just when he's talking and then he randomly spins around and just points his fingers and blows some more things up, it's just like so nonsensical. Um, but I think I will have to go with Sir Lancelot because I love the way that he plays Sir Lancelot. And as this person who jumps to action far too quickly before he's even thinking. And the whole bit in Swamp Castle, when he just storms in and just slashes everybody, even though it's a wedding and nobody is dressed to fight, and he's just like stabbing guests and he <laughs> kicks the bride in the chest. <laughs> it is one of the funniest bits. And uh, even when they, they come back down after the lord of swamp castle michael palin has kind of calmed him down he brings him back down and as soon as everybody starts shouting there he is he just runs and starts wanting to fight them again like it's just i love the way that he plays sir lancelot yeah me too all right terry gilliam plays patsy arthur's servant he is the soothsaying bridge keeper he is the green knight he is sir Bors. that is one of the three killed by uh the killer rabbit and he is the weak-hearted animator who has the heart attack <laughs> Don't forget, Gorilla Hand. He's Gorilla Hand. (laughs) Right, 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 right. She's probably the bridge keeper. 
It, it sounds hard for you in this one. A little bit, it is. I mean, I like Patsy. It's that's it, where we're introduced to that to the low budget horse gag, and I think that's very funny. It, it's also, it, yeah, I, I think it's probably, I think it's probably Bridgekeeper. I think that's the one that is the is the is the one that stands out because honestly, it's the most character for me not to because i i absolutely acknowledge terry gilliam as an incredible talent but he's not the he's not Cleese, idol or palin for me those are my top three uh in the troupe in terms of performance and the affinity that i have with the characters that they play and i i think their screen charisma and um and so that's that's kind of where i land makes it harder but the bridge keeper is such a notable character oh yeah yeah, I and he is the American of the group, and so he ends up in some some of the parts that don't speak quite as much. Like Patsy, really doesn't speak; it's just facial expressions and coconut uh, clip clopping. Um, the bridge keeper is very much a character, though, and um, to that end, I would agree. I, I love the bridge keeper and that whole bit at, at that point where they um, they're having to answer his questions. I think I have so much fun with that scene. So oh, I would say the funny. bridge keeper as well. Yeah. Okay. Eric Idle, all right. Uh, Sir Robin, the not-quite-so-brave as Sir Lancelot. You have, uh, he also plays Lancelot's squire, Concord. He is the uh, the collector of the dead. Oh, we didn't talk about John Cleese as the one bringing the, his dad out. Yeah. Uh, Eric yep. Idle also is Roger the Shrubber, and he's Brother Maynard. You know, maybe the one who, the, the one that stands out is going to be, well, of course, it's going to be in the, the um, uh, peasant sequence i think stands out to me here but really what i what i think when i think of him in this i think of him as the as the uh sir robin not so quite so brave as sir lancelot the way he talks to his minstrels is perfect yeah he is uh eric idol's just such a delight um i would probably end up going with um I'm torn on either the collector of the dead because just the whole bring out your dead bit is just so funny um, or brother Maynard. And that's just because just the whole religious ceremony that, that he performs over the Holy hand grenade uh, is so funny. But uh, a lot of that goes to Michael Palin, who's actually the one kind of reading the, the book of um, scriptures. So I'm going to say the collector of the dead for Eric Idle. That character just cracks me up. Okay. So that leaves us now to Terry Jones. Terry Jones. Uh, he is Sir Bedivere the Wise. He plays Prince Herbert. He is Dennis's mother. He's the left head of the three-headed giant. Where do you stand with Terry Jones? I think Sir Bedivere. <laughs> the witch scene really locks him into that Yeah, for me. I'm going to go with Prince Herbert because um, just the way that he he plays that is so funny. His desire to just sing always cracks me up. And just the way that he is just like just doesn't read the situation at all well when prince lancelot shows up and he's like i'm ready he's climbing out the window already and then his dad just cuts the <laughs> cuts the line oh just so funny so yeah that's where i am with terry jones okay last but not least michael palin sir galahad the pure he is the leader of the knights who say Nee. He is the Lord of Swamp Castle, he is Dennis, and he is the right head of the three-headed giant. And he also narrates the film. He sure does. Um, okay, what, you go first. What's your, uh, what's your favorite here? Well, because I love the sketch so much, I have to say Dennis. I, I think that he just nails it. Uh, I think he and Cleese both carry a lot of that sense of just kind of like uh, overeducated smarts with some of the way that they do like um, political 
it's not even a monologue, but just like they rattle all that stuff off so well. And Palin just carries that whole thing so perfectly as Dennis. So I'm going to say Dennis. I have to agree on Dennis. I think he's, I I think that's great. Although uh, his bit as Galahad the Pure in the castle is uh, (laughs) is quite, quite funny. (laughs) The oral sex. Well, I guess I could stay for a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) The the rescue scene. I I almost had it. Yeah, I I think those uh, I, I think that's those are those are certainly my favorites, and I think in, I, I have find the most charisma on screen in uh, Idol and Palin and and Cleese and um, you know Chapman as sort of the Arthurian leader, um, and I've always found more of the affinity with Gilliam and Jones in their sort of creative sort of design of Python in in what makes Python Python. Uh, less performative, more artistic. Terry Jones uh, stands out to me, I think, the most in a lot of the sketches, and often when he's playing women, because Terry Jones, like when he's doing that, uh, falsetto. that falsetto, is just like he's so great in it, and he does it so often in so many of their sketches that you know he's definitely one of my favorites, and even in later films, like he does that exceptionally. Right. So, right. Do any of the other actors stand out? I mean, obviously, these six play a huge number of roles, but there are a lot of others, uh, including a number of women uh, popping in, like Connie Booth, Carol Cleveland. Um, do you have any that stand out? <laughs> Carol Cleveland, Zoot Dingo. Zoot <laughs> <laughs> Dingo. Uh, very, very much. I know. Really, really funny. And... Uh, the historian John Young plays uh, Dead Body and Historian Frank. Uh, he was the I'm Not Dead Yet, I, oh, I believe. Uh, fantastic. So, uh, really, really funny. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in terms of, of standout, it's it's always been Connie Booth first because the witch character is uh, is a character, right? It's like it's it is not just another sort of girl in the castle. There are a ton of girl in the castle roles uh, listed, but, um, but you know, the witch is a character who has lines. Uh, Zoot, Dingo, Carol's, uh, Carol's dual role uh, has lines, easy to remember, um, you know, that, that character in that sequence. So uh, those are the ones that stand out to me. And then there are just a lot of other, a lot of other names that, that blend together in the comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, this was the first film that uh, that Gilliam and Jones had done. This is both of their first feature. They're directing this uh, in the scope. And, and they both acknowledged like the whole process of doing this. They just said, you know, hey, let's make a feature film. That'll be that'll be our education as to how to make a feature film. They both kind of very much jokingly took it on to do the whole thing. But does it strike you as too much of a first-timer sort of thing? Are there elements that feel like they were able to hone better as they kind of continued their careers? Or does it, like, you know, is it rough? What How does it work for you? I feel like that's a, a leading question because, of course, yeah, I mean, it's very rough. You can, until you realize the budget that this thing was made on, it, it feels to me like things like horse clopping coconuts were made, those decisions were made for comedy, but they were made for comedy and budget, right? Like that's, this is a movie that, that had some real constraints around how it was made. And I think part of what makes the movie 
stand up is the purity of the comedy in the face of constraint, in the face of limitation, in the face of the fact that these guys are kind of posh British guys who are playing these characters in a movie that looks amateurish. And that adds to the the fabric, I think, of its appeal to me. Yeah. I, I agree. And also, I think that they um, were smart in how they shot stuff. They used smoke machines a lot to kind of create, just create this space. I think that lent to the whole world building of everything just feels kind of smoky and dingy and, you know, hidden away. It just felt old and gross. They only filmed at a couple castles, but they used different angles to make it uh, kind of come across in a in a way that you didn't recognize them as the same place each time and uh, they uh, again they simplified things like well we don't have a budget for horses oh let's just use that for comedy and they found other ways and in the scope of world building like this just they it's kind of expert in how they craft this in a way that everything comes across sure in a low budget way but it all fits the world that they're creating here but is there is there something about, though, the appeal of this movie to filmmakers, especially first-time filmmakers, that it's possible to make a movie that that stands the test of generational time that has this certain look? You know, I, I suppose just the idea of when you make a first film. Now, granted, they had already been celebrity to a certain extent with tv shows you know their their show was already a success and so there was an element of success to them where they were able to kind of access the people that they needed to do the costumes and stuff but i think it's it is a great example uh i don't hear many first-time filmmakers talking about this as a source of their inspiration but i think it very well could be because you look at some of the ways that they shoot some of the scenes it's very simple and the you know if they're going to kind of create this little um you know this place where Roger the shrubber works it, it's not a lot of set dressing that they have to do to kind of put something together but it gives us a sense of everything we need to buy into it and sure let's throw an old lady there beating a dead cat um why not it also just helps build the world and so they just find little ways to kind of amp up the world and i think that's you see some first time filmmakers um at festivals and whatnot and that's something that you'll notice is they there's a lot of just dead space in their framing they're not finding ways to just kind of flesh things out a little bit and that's certainly something that uh, i think they could learn from something like this yeah it's interesting Uh, it, it is interesting to me just what the movie ends up representing beyond what it ends up being as a a funny lampoon on medieval british history we didn't even talk about the knights who say knee which i think are the possibly the greatest punchline of a joke on medieval academics that isn't to me itself laugh out loud funny (laughs) like that's a that to me is where the movie slows down a little bit because i don't i don't really really truck with the knights who say knee i never really did um but the fact that it's it it ends up being something to laugh at it's a, really a play on on medievalism in British history, right? And and the fact that that Bedivere can't say "nee," he says "no" as a joke on not being able to pronounce Middle English is. <laughs> it, 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 like, I think that's I think that's really funny, and um, you know, it it is it is also the peak 
uh, in the level of sort of disenchantment with historical accuracy in the movie. Like there is that we've we are talking about Arthur. We're talking about all these things. The Black Knights in here. These are all things that are his, history adjacent. And then we get to the Knights who say knee, which and the three headed knight, which are completely non sensical in in history and it it finally is the the python boys saying let's here's this is the the tallest middle finger we can muster <laughs> to to our our history classroom um and and i think that's funny that's funny to me yeah. that part yeah and and uh, i mean even things like the the rabbit of Kerbanog, which seems so nonsensical but even that they got an idea from, you know, there is an actual facade in uh, Notre Dame of a knight fleeing from a rabbit. And they saw that and decided to kind of uh, play with that a little bit and turn it into something a little more. And so, yeah, every little thing, I mean, sure, some of it ends up being a little more nonsensical than others, but it ends up having a grounding in in, in its creation. And I think that's what makes it so unique it really feels you know like everything is actually has something behind it here yeah yeah for sure and and that rabbit uh i you know it's it's sort of coming back to me now i think the rabbit is why i watched the movie the first time i think it was like my aunt janet or somebody tried to talk to me about it and (laughs) i hadn't seen it and she said you have to see it for the rabbit scene so i think i watched the whole movie the first time for the rabbit scene well it's a it's a good reason did you hear about the financing for this film how they put it together well, I want you to tell me all about it. Well, it's actually interesting. And I it was only recently that Eric Idle actually tweeted about this, but they could not find any studio uh, that would actually finance the film. And so they reached out to a number of different um, rock stars because, as Gilliam said, they, uh, it was a good tax write-off because at the time, the uh, income tax levels in the UK was, quote, as high as 90% sometimes which is what crazy so yeah so they <laughs> reached out to uh led zeppelin pink floyd jethro tolls ian anderson uh michael white who was one of the producers on the film heartaches which was a cricket team that uh tim rice had founded and three different record companies uh including charisma records which released some of their albums and apparently elton john also all of them kind of contributed to the actual budget for the film and ended up not only because they paid for this, but also they ended up getting um, proceeds from Spamalot because of their um, initial investments. So I find that to be so fascinating that that's the route that they went. But it just goes to show the process of making films. It's about finding the right people to to give you your money. Yeah, right. Finding the right people who back the idea and don't care very much about you know, yeah, I need a tax write-off. <laughs> you need the tax write-off, right? Oh my gosh, so funny. that's awesome! What a good story. Yeah, yeah. Well, anything else with this one? I d- I don't. I just I feel like we could just go on quoting the movie if you want. But yeah. um, oh, you know, I do want to say though, it was interesting that you brought up that scene with I can't remember which one is it. Uh, is it Zoot or Dingo who stops and looks into the camera and does that little meta conversation? Are, are you glad that they included the scene? We're so happy. And everyone's like, get on with it. That was actually my understanding was that that was actually a like a deleted scene that they had actually then 
subsequently, I think they put that back in. I could be wrong on this, but my memory says that they put that back in for the Criterion LaserDisc version of it. This was back in um, the 90s when they when Criterion released the LaserDisc, and it's been in every version since. I may be wrong on that, but that was my recollection, is that that scene had been actually excluded for a time. That's interesting to me. Yeah. I, it, where, I mean, where do you stand on it? I mean, I like it. I think it's actually kind of funny. And in the in the meta nature of everything else going on in the film, I mean, we don't really have anyone else breaking the fourth wall and actually having a conversation directly with the audience. But yeah. in the scope of everything else going on, the absurdity of it fits. I, I find that it actually plays okay. I do too. It, it does feel like, I, I can't remember who, I think it was an Eric Idle interview I was watching once where they were maybe it was Palin. I, I, anyway, they were talking about how they go about writing a lot of these these long-form pieces, the Python guys, and th- talking about how, you know, we just, we write and write and write, and then we run into this, to some intractable thing that we just can't figure out how to get to the other side. And then pretty much we would call Gilliam and say, hey, we need some animation to cover this ending that we don't have a good idea for. And there'll be a giant foot that squashes something, you know, it just seems like a a cutaway, an animated cutaway. That's kind of what this felt like to me. Like they just ran them, wrote themselves into a corner and weren't sure how to get out of it and needed something to to just completely shake up something to cut away, get our attention moved on to something else, uh, not using the animation to do it, but obviously using, you know, these characters from later in the film. And to me, I think it it really works. I think it's, it's an, an inspired distraction before we get back to another angle on the story. But um, but you can see it once you hear once I heard him talk about that process of writing into a corner and needed needing something to get us out of it and normally choosing animation um that that makes sense that makes more sense to me in terms of process yeah yeah one last note i really enjoy that they continue like as they release the film over and over in different iterations they continue doing things that she just feel very monty python to it right like on the dvd release they ended up releasing there's the subtitle track that you can listen to but there's also an alternate subtitle track quote for people who don't like the film which is just lines from henry the fourth part two <laughs> that through the entire thing they also on the on the um on the dvd they they released a whole new open to the film that's only i think about two minutes but it actually starts a different film and you have these opening credits that I, cause there was the version that I watched it started with these opening credits. I'm like, I don't remember this. And then it starts this British film dentist on the job. And then suddenly you hear this projectionist from like your rear speaker come in and it's like, Oh, it's wrong. Film, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, changes the reels. And you get this little slide saying, wait, please wait. Uh, well, technical difficulties or something. And then the film starts. And so they continue doing that. Uh, even to the point where, I mean, as we're releasing this, it's having its 48 and a half anniversary release uh, theatrically. And so just the fact that they continue finding ways to throw nonsensical things like that in, I just think is just so much fun. Me too. Are you going to go see it in the theater? I very well may. I couldn't, uh, timing wise, couldn't make it work to watch it with my kids. And so I'm very tempted uh, to take my kids to it. Although I, I, my wife and I watched it and I told her that. And she's just like, I don't know how they would do if they would click with this one or not. But I may try it anyway. You got it. You got to try it. That's your thing. 
I know. They got, You're they that need to dad. Understand. They need to understand their dad. This is who All I right. am. <laughs> this is who you are. Uh, okay. All right. Well, we'll be right back. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Ilan Barlavi, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at the-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. All right, let's talk about, look, we, we got to talk about Spam a lot. Oh, Spam a lot. I've never seen it. And I I don't know if it's come through here. Um, it's something that I would really love to see. I've listened to the soundtrack, really enjoy it. But yeah, it is something that Eric Idle specifically, I, with the success of all these different, um, uh, you know, 70s films being turned into Broadway musicals. Uh, he was like, why not this one as well? And so he wrote this in, in 2005, uh, ended up winning a lot of Tony Awards. He was, I mean, I should say it wasn't just him, it was a number of people, but he primarily was the one behind it. They did greenlight it to make a film version of it. And that was when it was 20th Century Fox. And then Disney acquired 20th Century Fox. The whole thing fell through. It shifted over to Paramount. They started putting it together. But then because two of Idol's former colleagues, uh, I'm not exactly sure, but two of them opposed the idea of a film version of it, it has completely uh, fallen off the map as far as something that's going to be made. So we are left with the Broadway version, which I hear is wonderful. Um, have you seen it? No, I have not seen it. I have not heard it, with the exception of, Andy, the Macy's Thanksgiving Thanksgiving Day Parade, 
this year, i.e. a few days ago, we watched it and they actually, one of the Broadway numbers that they did was, um, was from the show. And it, I have a, it, I have that strange reaction to it where I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's great. Right. I'm sure it's wonderful. It's winning all these awards. It's really great. And yet somewhere deep inside, I'm thinking, but that's not my holy grail. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I have I have a weird resistance to actually putting it on. I need to just put it on and listen to the music. I hear it's fantastic. I managed to wrap my head around Heather's The Musical, and I think very highly of that. Beetlejuice, same thing, very highly of that. And those are source material that that was, the, you know, things that were close to me as a kid. So, um, yeah, I, I need to get, get around to it. Well, Tim Curry, um, I, again, on the soundtrack, he is fantastic as Arthur. I would love to track down a version, uh, just like a filmed version of that show with him as King Arthur. Um, so yeah maybe one day but anyway that's where we stand as far as any remakes of the film and no sequels at all alas no we all know how that turned out uh how did it do at the uh award season it was a very thin one i mean it wasn't designed for awards i suppose um it only had two wins and two other nominations and only one of these four was actually from the time it was released the 1976 hugo awards which is of course why we're here uh it was nominated for best dramatic presentation but as we know lost to avoid his dog the others were all more modern awards. At the 2001 European Film Awards, it won a Lifetime Achievement Award. At the 2001 DVD Exclusive Awards, it was nominated for Best Audio Commentary, but lost to Roger Ebert's Citizen Kane Commentary, which is uh, a very good commentary, so I agree with that one. And at the 2014 Online Film and Television Association um, Awards, it received the Film Hall of Fame Award. Okay. That's something. I think it's funny that Best Dramatic Presentation at the Hugo Awards lost to a boy and his dog, given the our conversation about that. Well, you know, it is interesting, though, because, I mean, it's it's a tricky line because thinking that the Hugo Awards specifically focused on science fiction and fantasy, and of the four we're talking about, A Boy and His Dog, Dark Star, This, and Rollerball, this one feels like comedic history more than fantasy perhaps and i wonder if that's if that may have i I don't know just putting myself into the voters heads might they have said well it feels less fantasy and it doesn't feel like it it fits what we're looking for quite as much that's the only reason i could think but otherwise this would be my pick absolutely yeah i think so too for sure although i haven't finished rollerball yet you never know Mm, just wait well i mean i've seen it before this is one i've seen before have you watched it? Oh. I'm excited about it. Yeah, I can't wait. Motorcycles. Uh, motorcycles and roller skates, man. So good. <laughs> uh, how did it do this fair film at the box office? Well, for this film, the Python Boys had a budget of 282,000 pounds or about $664,000. That ends up being about $3.8 million in today's dollars. The movie premiered in L.A. March 14, 1975, London April 9th, New York City April 28th, then finally opened May 25th in the U.K. I don't actually see a wide U.S. release until it's re-released in 2001, which is crazy. This one did well for itself regardless, earning 2.3 million pounds in the UK or 4.8 million dollars, which equates to 27.4 million in today's dollars. 
With that, the film lands with an adjusted profit per finished minute of just under $260,000. Not bad, Python. Not bad. But I don't know why it seems so weird to me that it's taken this long and for this particular award category that for us to get this movie <laughs> <laughs> in our catalog. I know. Uh, but I'm glad we finally did. It was a great watch. So glad it holds up. Uh, it's just, it is so hard, as I said, to just not sit and just quote the whole thing. You know, that's, it, it takes work for me to just not do that. So, um, because it is just immensely quotable. They write great comedy. All right, we'll be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, ending this particular series. Norman Jewison's Rollerball. Jonathan E., that's the name. Houston players come and go, but the champion plays on. You know how the game serves us. It has a definite social purpose. Nations are bankrupt, gone. No poverty, no sickness. Man has accomplished what he'd always craved. Corporate society was an inevitable destiny. The good life, a centuries-old dream. You better do as you told, Jonathan. That's all I have to say. Don't be here when I come back. You won't be back, Johnny Bull. No player is greater than the game itself. It's not a game a man is supposed to grow strong in, Jonathan. person I ever wanted. Wanted you on my side. That's all. The books you've ordered are classified and have been transcribed and summarized. Well, who summarized them? Zero, of course. He's the world's brain. Does it answer you? Oh, yes. It speaks. <laughs> I'd like, uh... I'd like, uh, some information about corporate decisions, uh, how they're made and who makes them. They're afraid of you, Jonathan. All the way to the top, they are. The game was created to demonstrate the futility of individual effort. Let the game do its work. Game! This wasn't meant to be a game! It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. 
Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links supports the show. In Season 13, we explore various awards categories and the films nominated in them. We wrapped up our 1940 Best Picture series with adaptations of Mice and Men from John Steinbeck and Wuthering Heights from Emily Bronte's novel, not to mention the play Dark Victory by George Brewer Jr. and Bertram Block. The 1947 Academy Award adapted screenplay series featured Anna and the King of Siam based on Margaret Langdon's book, plus The Best Years of Our Lives, Brief Encounter, and The Killers. The 1952 cinematography nominees included Death of a Salesman and A Streetcar Named Desire, A Place in the Sun, based on both a play and a book, and Strangers on a Train, based on Patricia Highsmith's first novel. So many great movies based on books and plays, like Beckett, The Pumpkin Eater, A Boy and His Dog, Rollerball, The Princess Bride, Congo, The Scarlet Letter, Jackie Brown, The Deep End, The Gray, The Woman in Black, and Top Gun Maverick, which I'm very much looking forward to revisiting. Get the source books at thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read or reread from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today. All right, Andy, it's letterbox time. I don't need to make a big deal out of this. I know where you land. This is a 10 star and two, four, four hearts. This is a cow's stomach of hearts. <laughs> this is one where it's perfectly fine to steal all the stars from so many other things because it's just perfect. I mean, it's so funny. It just gets better and better and better with age. Absolutely five stars in a heart for me. Me too. Well, don't forget, you can find me at Soda Creek Film and Pete at Pete Wright over on Letterboxd and, of course, the show at The Next Reel. So, what do you think about Monty Python and the Holy Grail? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we'll be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andy. As Letterboxd always doeth. I feel dirty mucking around in the bottom of the barrel this week. We went low, both of us, and I feel filthy as a result. People, There are people who really (laughs) hate this movie, but I think we found Uh, some gems. Yes, I think so. I do think we did. You should go first. All right, I've got a half star by Short King 2013, who says, God, this is the most unfunny movie I've ever seen. As somebody who takes British culture very bloody seriously, I don't like seeing it mocked. I thought the scene where the Frenchman throws cows at them was really unfunny. Wow. I'd like to see uh, Terry Gilliam's animated God reacting to that. Yes, me too. (laughs) I have a half star review. Uh, from Cookies for You, who says, and I shall present this without commentary, they didn't say the title of the movie. (laughs) You're not going to say commentary, but I (laughs) love the fact that this is your 
this is the the <laughs> as they say, you know, there are two sides to the coin. You know, this yes. is the opposite of you because this is a person who requires them to say the title of the movie in the film. Just the only five star movie best. is a movie that says the title uh, in the movie, and it is. This is my like Red Star Superman. You know what I mean? Like this is this is my alter ego. This is it. It's the opposite of me. <laughs> And that's the oh, only God, difference. We Otherwise, it. we're identical. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh well. so good. Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15-plus years, Transistor has been, hands down, the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world... Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.